think so many of the whys without storytelling being part of it, it's 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 very cut and dry. And as humans, you know, like I mean, I'm Irish, so like I mean, storytelling is in the in the blood. Um, but you but you think of that, you know, sitting around the campfire, that telling a story. That's what paints a picture. That's what paints what's possible. That's what paints the here's the future that we're heading to. Which for any leader um, is so important. We've got to be able to paint a picture of the future, and that has to be more enticing than the picture we've got today. How do you get ten thousand people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today I have a real treat for you as I get to have a deep conversation with a change and resilience coach, facilitator and consultant, mental health and well-being advocate and facilitator and an international keynote speaker. Having had an extensive 20 plus year corporate career in technology and organizational change, she now focuses her expertise on helping global leaders build change, resilience, and leadership capability in themselves, their teams, and their organizations. Our guest studied a diploma in analytical chemistry from the Letterkenny Institute of Technology, is an accredited ProSci ADCA change practitioner and certified life coach. She is a recipient of the Global Best Practices Award by software giant SAP for a complex change training and communications program designed and implemented for an iconic international food company. Her early career included chemistry technician, analyst, security and change management roles at companies such as Abbott Diagnostics, Air Laboratories, Cisco Systems, Zento, Powerlin, Reuters and Campbell Arnott's. I'm honored to introduce to you a powerful advocate for courageous conversations, the 2019 MC Storyteller of the Year, the author of Positive Change, Life and Leadership Lessons from Corporate Burnout, a former butcher's apprentice, and most importantly, a mum to a beautiful teenage daughter, Diane Driscoll. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. I love that my butcher's experience appeared in that intro. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that would catch a, a smile there from you. And look, it's it's interesting. I only saw that today. I had never known it until I was doing a bit of deep reading. And I was like, that is one thing I don't know about Diane. And I'm sure we're going to get to know a lot more about Diane than I, I've known before. So I'm really, really excited about this interview. And it's great to have another great um, conversation with you, Diane. Thanks, Craig. So good to be here. And you know me, nothing's out of bounds. I'm as excited as you are to see where this uh, conversation goes. Beautiful. And look, you've just come back from a trip to Ireland where you purchased a house back in uh, close to where your family is. Uh, so I'm really curious, what was life like growing up as a child in Ireland, you know, with your family there? Oh, gosh. Right. So, yeah, I'm so I guess I'm a visual person. So let me paint the landscape. It's like, you know, hills, mountains, sheep. And um, and I'm from an area that's the primary industry is either farming or fishing. So mostly fishing villages. Um, and it's also very seasonal work. So around me, you know, we were either, you know, making hay while the sun shines. So things were great in the fishing industry or at the time where we had reached quotas, you would end up with a lot of families being out of work. So 
where I come from, both the the land and I guess that employment background really shaped who I was growing up. So, you know, you, you had to, you grew up with a sense of having a good job is really important. Holding on to that job is really important. But at the same time, also that sense of community, because it's all very small, like there was like 330 people in the the village I grew up in. So that sense of close community of everybody pulling in together. And of course, you know, gossiping about each other too. It's like, it doesn't, it's not just a sense of community. But yeah, like absolutely my roots are very much in Ireland, even though I've been in Australia since 99. So if I was to sit down with a Guinness uh, in front of the fireplace <laughs> during winter with your dad, how would he explain you as a child? Oh, good God. God love him. He'd probably have a lot to say. Actually, no, he'd probably have a few, you know, wise words to say. So, yeah, probably uh, when I was very young, that when I left the house during the day, he would not see me until someone called for me for, you know, for dinner or when it was getting dark. So I would be over the fields playing with my friends, you know, building huts and climbing trees, doing all the stuff that you do when you live out in the, in the countryside. Um, I also think that he would have said that I was relatively sensitive. So an example of that being, um, you know, when I was doing my leading search, which is the HSC equivalent, um, I wanted to do either psychology or art. They were, those were the two things that I wanted to do for my career. And he said, I don't think you should be a psychologist. I don't think you're mentally strong enough for it. You'll take on, you'll take on too many of people's problems. And then the other thing he said about art was, um, he goes, you'll probably not be able to make a living out of it because most artists don't make money until they're dead and then it's no good to them. So it was like those perils of wisdom. He knew me really well. Um, and now I look back on those things and while I was annoyed with him at the time for like, you're stopping me from doing the things I want to do with my life. But it's like, no, that he knew me really, really well. So yeah, fairly complex kids and definitely in my teenage years probably even more complex but generally someone who was uh yeah yeah how would i put it uh, a good friend to others is a way i'd like to beautiful and so you know during that time would you were you did you feel like you were more of a natural leader or someone that was more of a follower when you were young um where did you sit as a teenager yeah, I think I, so I was never like ever one of the, you know, the in the popular crew of school or anything like that. But I do feel that I would have exhibited um, reluctant leadership is probably the best way to put it. And I find that followed me throughout my career as well. It's like, not that I ever chose or went out to be the leader, but situations would arise that needed to be tackled. Um, you know, it didn't matter if you were just playing, you know, soccer on the street or, you know, you're, you're just a pack of kids doing something. I felt that I just seemed to be the one who would step in and take control of a situation or that people would follow what you you had to say. But yet never, never wanting to be the one who imposed that, always being the one who just ended up, yeah, there's a void, there's a situation that needs to be managed, you know, just step in and do what needs to be done. And you, you mentioned earlier there around... Uh, the importance of getting a good job and getting paid. Now, am I correct that you started a butcher's apprentice at the age of 13? Yes, I was first year in high school. Um, and yeah, where I came from, everybody, you know, you all got a, a job early. Um, and I did other jobs before that that were more picking winkles, if people know what that is. So it's shellfish off the, off the beach or digging for clams. Um, but you kind of were taught in my area anyway that, you know, you paid your way, that you worked with the family, you contributed to, you know, to your school expenses and stuff. But yeah, the uh, working in Ainsworth Butchers in Killybegs um, for until I was 20, 19 or twenty. I'm trying to think now, but I was in college when I when I left. But I would still go back on Saturdays, um, you know, go back for Christmas times particularly because you know we've got to get those turkeys and hams out to people. But yeah, <laughs> that was the best grounding experience for me as a teenager, just to have that sense of responsibility of, you know, contributing to the family and, you know, dealing with the public, but also just foundations for life, for career after that. Um, yeah. So anyone who has kids out there, get your kids out working. I know I'll be doing it with mine as soon as, as, soon as it's legally possible in Australia. <laughs> uh, what the authorities don't know doesn't matter, right? <laughs> <Get them>. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. 
<laughs> uh, I remember dating a girl and, and I remember catching me by surprise when she said she was a butcher. I was like, well, because it's just not something you, you know, back then I wouldn't have expected from a female being working in a butcher's, right? It's pretty rare yeah. and, and many do, but it was, yeah. it was, I still remember it just caught me so off guard, but she was a beautiful, beautiful human being and still is. Of course she is. Yeah. She was a butcher's apprentice. Of course she's a beautiful <laughs> human being. <laughs> Oh, well, at least your parents would have been happy with a free meat, I'm sure, come home every now and then. Absolutely. It was like I was beating the family when I went to college. It was even better because I'd get stocked up. I was the only person in, in college who actually had really good meat supply. Mm. You know, nowadays there's a lot of pressures on teenagers and children that we didn't have when we were young. Like you, we have social media now where... You know, if things were an issue at school, it would it would stay in the playground, so to speak. But now the playground is extended far beyond the school grounds, and uh, the playground now is is on a phone, which is a little bit scary as well. Uh, for you, do, can you, when you think back to those times, were there times where you found uh, the teenage years quite a challenge, or or were you able to cope with? the changes of puberty and, um, and growing up in life quite easy. Yeah, I don't, I definitely didn't find it easy. And it's funny when I look back at it, I kind of see two sides and this is probably true for my whole childhood through teenage years. It's like, I look at the really great side of things that had happened. Mm. And then I also saw the, cause I had a lot of mental health issues in my teenage years um, not that that would have been known to a lot of my friends around me. It was known in my in my family, but not. I kept it very well hidden. So, so for me, there was a lot of internal turmoil, internal torture that that went through in my mind and just my daily getting myself outdoor, getting myself to school, getting myself whatever you know whatever needed to be gone through because. Yeah, in, in teenage years, and I remind myself so much now that my daughter is, you know, embarking on that. So she's turning 13 in March. But yeah. it's that sense of, you know, as adults, we look through the world very, very differently. But when you're a teenager, you're figuring it all out and you think you've it all figured out. It's a very, very different world that you're, that you're in and everything seems more uh, blown out of all proportion probably now I can say with hindsight but mm. at the time it was yeah teenage years were difficult to, to navigate and so how would you cope with those situations what sort of coping strategies did you put in place or did someone help you put in place that you know, you maybe still use now or you find useful in the corporate world um Sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because the first thing that comes to mind is heavy metal music. It's like that is like is like, you know, was and yeah. still is my, my primary coping mechanism. Great. It's like if I no matter what it is and in teenage years, that was my my sense of somebody understands what I'm going through or somebody understands the pain, the angst, whatever, the, the depression, the anxiety that I'm going through. That was mirrored back to me in in music which was 100% my my go-to thing but back then like I didn't do any meditations or no. breath work or any of the things that I have today but nature was the other thing so that's uh, you know when I was very young always being over over the fields and exploring but you know because I grew up in the Atlantic it was like just take me down to a rocky shore with crashing waves and you know I'd be there with my my own thoughts, not all, not always good, but it would just be a place to, to go and yeah, kind of quiet out whatever was going on in the, in the world at the time. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure the executives of Google who are pretty good at wellbeing will be playing heavy metal across the, the airwaves <laughs> in the office. <laughs> well, I, I, ha I had a recent keynote where I, I meant I was asked a question and I answered it about about uh, heavy metal and I had the CEO of the organization be, be, a few people had come up to me afterwards and said he's a heavy metal fan and we were connecting afterwards and sharing notes on our favorite band so yeah <laughs> maybe a little bit tragic but for anyone who is into the music like <laughs> beautiful and so in those formative years you know you, you talked about your dad obviously uh, playing quite a key role there, but were there any other role models that had a powerful impact on on your career trajectory or, or the way you went about life? Yeah, I think family definitely. Like um, 
you know, my my parents, both of them um, supporting me because, you know, going to college was not something that was necessarily done, definitely not in my family and not necessarily done in my area. Um, now lots of kids go to university and college, but for me it was I had to push to try to to get there and they did everything they could to, to support me doing that because, yeah, obviously it was a relatively low-income family. So any additional costs or anything of going to, to college, which is, is different back then than it is right now. Um, but yeah, like so so my parents definitely huge influence on my on my life. But um talking about working in the butchers, so you know, the um the the, the family who owned the butchers and you know the, the people that I worked with there, just instilling that kind of business savvy or you know communication savvy dealing with the public in general or handling delicate situations but also the fact that you know they had three teenagers working for them that we would all come in with our dramas at the weekend but <laughs> we're working on a saturday and here's like dramas that were you know unfolding in the butcher shop between customers but it's those sorts of things so just having some role models that kind of day-to-day help you out mm. um i think overall though my granddad who lived like um 300 miles away on the other side of Ireland, which doesn't sound a lot in Australia, but in Ireland, it was like a once once a year trip to, to Cork. But he was a huge, and still is, like, I mean, he's passed now, but he's still always front of mind. He was always very much in favour of, um, you know, my, my aunts and me and my sisters becoming independent as much as we possibly could, starting our own businesses, you know, just being self-sufficient for who we are as individuals, not necessarily, you know, having to be married off to someone as the term would have been back then. But um, yeah, he, just the way he lived his life, his attitude towards life and his support for us was, yeah, just always a shining light. Mm, beautiful. And it was, it was actually my my grandfather's, would have been his 92nd birthday yesterday. So I'm having a having a nice little discussion with my mum last night and uh, I probably don't speak too much around this but he was a very good coach um, very good uh, cricket player as well and so he had quite a remarkable impact on my career as well so yeah it's lovely to reflect on that too isn't it it's like when you stop and acknowledge it and take stock of it and yeah like I guess recently I've had a lot of opportunity to, to to look at particularly my grandparents and think you know what's the influence that they've had across the board on yeah it's important it's character shaping Mm, definitely so uh, you you went and studied a diploma in analytical chemistry and so it's probably not what the normal butcher's apprentice would go and do but um no one's judging here Uh, (laughs) so 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 what was the catalyst behind and, and you know what drove you into you know a world of chemistry and analytics in in your early years of your career yeah it's funny having all of this played back to me because I always talk about having a meandering career path and it is it's so true but when you play it back it's like so it was okay you're not going to do psychology you're not going to do art and then I was like what am I going to do and it's like well, what am I good at I'm good at science anything science related I just have a scientific or an analytical brain um, so for me, it was like, okay, let's let's do science and chemistry was the thing that I that I loved most. Even though I was, you know, being told by my lecturers in in college, it's like you're not so hot on the maths side of things, but you're really good at the chemistry. But and you need to have both to be to be really good in that. Yeah. Thing. But it's um, you know, you just trust yourself and you think, yeah, it doesn't matter. I hear you're telling me that I'm not good at these things, but I'm just going to keep plowing forward. So yeah. Analytical chemistry was what I did until, yeah, 2000, 19, 2000. Yeah, and then you started moving more into that change management space. And uh, obviously it's huge, huge kind of focus nowadays around how can we not only make transformational change inside an organization, but the human element to it. Uh, so over the last 20, 20 odd years of working in this space of change, what has been the biggest change you've seen in the way people approach change management? Gosh, I really wish I could say that there have been leaps forward, but, you know, it's even recent news about um, 
you know, a lot of redundancies in major organizations which remain nameless and, you know, people are just getting an email rather than a call from their, you know, from their leader to have that human connection. And when I see things like that, it physically hurts me. I think, how can we not have learned? How can we not have learned yet that behind every employee number, there is an actual human being who has, you know, a a family, whether that's, you know, whether they're a parent or not. It's like we've all got people that we support in one way or another. We've got mortgages to pay. We've got, you know, food to put on the table. So that human connection. So for me, when I see things like that, it makes me realize that, you know, the real things that matter, that real human connection hasn't shifted a huge amount, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you see it from the larger organizations that you think, okay, we should, you know, we should know better. We've got the resources. We've got the, you know, and, and it's not for a moment that I think that there weren't people inside the organization that were saying, here's the way I think we should be doing it because, you know, you will always have that um, voice around the around the table. But I um, the biggest shift I would, I would say that I see is that you know, in the early days, change was not something people considered. It was like, okay, you're putting in an IT system or you're doing a restructure. And it was all about the mechanics, the transactional piece that needed to be done. They weren't thinking about the the people and how people go through change. So we have progressed along that. We've started to think about people as, you know, your whole self to work. Um, you know, that that's that whole individual. But it's it's still in a lot of organizations is very much lip service rather than something that you're seeing being done in a in a considered way. Yeah. And for you, I mean, obviously, we've got people out there listening and um, everyone's trying to figure out the change puzzle. And so for, for from your perspective, what are probably the most common things that uh, allow change to happen? Uh, a little bit more smoothly and, and i suppose on the flip side what prevents change from happening um in a smooth transitional way inside an organization yeah it's funny the answer is the same for for both it's like for me change is very much like remembering that change is a very personal thing so yes you may be trying to mobilize an organization through change but at the end of the day it's every individual's relationship with change is like do i want to use this new it system do i want to take on this new role do i want to be relocated to this other you know area do i want to move from this seat in the office to that seat in the office because believe me just moving people's desks can be a, can be a nightmare um but though that sense of you know when we look at change on mass and don't get me wrong because i do myself out of a job here that you've got to in larger scale change be able to manage the change as a program but at the end of the day it's getting down and remembering that you've got to have that individual connection with each person and having that you know heart-to-heart conversation because if you do that you get that um you know that discretionary effort from people as well it's that case of you build that connection that goodwill that you know we've got to change but here's what's happening then people carry that with them and they feel they feel good they feel that they're you know they're cared for they feel like they're looked after they feel like they're important to the organization whereas if you get an email or you get something that hasn't been explained why Mm. um, a change is occurring that's when people start to to resist the change but on the flip side of that, so, you know, like, yes, as leaders, we need to think about the individuals, but there's also that balancing factor that as individuals, we need to stop feeling so hard done by, you know, we need to stop thinking, well, they've just gone and done another restructure or they've just gone and, you know, don't they realize our system works better than the organization we've merged with and um, whatever it might be that's changing for you. At the end of the day, you've got to take you know personal responsibility, and this is something that's core to the coaching work that I do. That you know your personal responsibility. Take that on board and say, okay, this change is coming. Did I ask for it? No. How do I feel about it? How am I going to keep moving forward with this rather than resisting? Because once you've got resistance coming in, it serves no one. It doesn't serve your organization. Doesn't serve your team. And it definitely doesn't serve you. And I've been on the receiving end of this, being someone who has been made redundant myself in my time and had you know numerous changes imposed upon me but all change comes from within so whether it's imposed upon you or whether you're saying oh well i want this promotion i want this um, opportunity 
if you don't drive it with that sense of personal responsibility, mm-hmm. that's where, you know, that's where we can grease the wheels for everybody. Yeah, so talking about uh, obviously personal responsibility when it comes to change, you, what about those instances when, you know, people, yeah, we feel cared for, we feel heard, but we don't see any reason why we should change. Um, we're happy with how everything's going, even though you've, you know, you've asked for my opinion or you um, have at least shown some care about me, I still don't see any sense in this change. What's happening in those situations and how can we, how can we kind of support people through that change when they just go, hey, look, we're, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing and it doesn't seem like the change is, any, is, is actually really going to make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is hard, but it is helping people figure out what's in it for them. So here's what's changing and being very clear about the what's changing and why it's changing. Because once people understand the why, they may not agree with it, but if they understand that, okay, we're doing a restructure for this reason, or we are letting people go for this reason, once they understand the why, and it's it's not a lip service or it's not a, you know, overly scripted sort of remark, that it is a genuine, transparent, um, you know, reason behind that. But, you know, human connection generally thinks, okay, I get what you're saying. I may not like it, but I'm okay with it. And if I think about what's currently happening in my own life, like my daughter didn't want necessarily want to go to high school this week. It's like, you know, she's leaving all the familiarity of, you know, primary school. And it's like, you know, you have to sit down and have the conversation. It's like, because at the end of the day, this is happening, whether mm. you like it or not. So but then that's where the personal responsibility comes into it again. It's like, if you keep fighting against something, then you're at the end of the day, you're left with a decision. Your decision is, do I get on board with this change? And I hate that term, you know, get on the bus, um, which is used a lot in relation to change. But realistically, your choices are, do I want to go with this change? Or if I'm not happy with it, then what's my alternative? So mm. am I leaving the organization? Am I going to apply for a different role? Am I, you know, what what are those alternatives available but do not abdicate your own personal responsibility that you are the person who needs to show up for yourself every day and so going along that theme what is what is the i suppose the importance of storytelling and being able to paint a picture of what the future is going to look like how big a part does that play because yeah you might you might be able to to tell me the why um but if I can't really see it, yes. I'm still going to be a bit hesitant, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so many of the whys without storytelling being part of it, it's 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 very cut and dry. And as humans, you know, like, I mean, I'm Irish, so like storytelling is in the in the blood. Um, but, you, but you think of that, you know, sitting around the campfire, that telling a story, that's what paints a picture. That's what paints what's possible. That's what paints the, here's the future that we're heading to, which for any leader um, is so important. We've got to be able to paint a picture of the future. And that has to be more enticing than the picture we've got today. And if it's not, then we need to take a hard look at ourselves because, you know, why are you doing the change if there isn't a true reason for it? But and that's in simplified terms, but for if you're doing large-scale change across a corporate organization that may be, you know, global reach, thinking about again, so what are the groups and the individuals within that? Because the stories for a, you know, a, a manufacturing team are very different than the sales team, or, you know, what's happening at a frontline worker who may be a forklift driver is very different than someone who is the CFO. So the story and that picture that you need to paint of the future of where you're going with this change needs to be tweaked and adjusted for each one of those people. And it is, you know, the old um, saying of you know, capturing hearts and minds. It's like the minds, yes, I want all these boxes ticked, but at the end of the day, you've got to make me want it in my heart before I'm going to make that personal decision to move forward. Mm, very good. Very, very good. I like that. Now we're hearing lots in the... There is so much exposure of this right now. There's there's disruption. There's so much change. Uh, I'm curious from your perspective, are we actually seeing more change than ever before? Are we or are we just more aware that there's a lot of change happening? Oh, there's there's definitely more change. And um, I use a quote 
constantly in my in my keynotes and in my work, which is, you know, uh, change has never been this fast and it will never be this slow again. Mm. And it's it's by Graham Wood. It's been it's been reused by Justin Trudeau, but it's that was where it originally came from. But for me, it is it is there is like once upon a time in, you know, corporate world or any business, you'd have a change, you'd have a little bit of a breather and then another change. Or, you know, we're going to do this piece of work or we've got this goal. Yes, there'll be smaller amounts of work that we're overlapping. But now we have ramped up, ramped up, ramped up. And through COVID, through the whole pandemic, um, we, in one way, so fascinating to watch the human experience of both, you know, individuals and organizations adapting to everything that needed to be done during that time. But we have really, really created a new benchmark for ourselves of what's possible. And if we could do that, then why don't we keep pushing and pushing because the human, you know, we can't help ourselves, but as humans push ourselves for more, let's keep doing more, let's do more with less in most organizations because we want to be as lean as possible. But so we're pushing and pushing and pushing the limits. But, you know, you see that the fact of that is, you know, change is increasing, like the pace and complexity of changes is increasing, but then mental health and overall well-being in the workplace and outside of the workplace is in decline. So it's something that I spoke a lot about even before COVID hit, but it was falling on deaf ears, this 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 relationship between change and resilience. Um, you know, I'd go into HR manager's office and have a conversation about you know, the work that I do and the programs that I provide. And they were like, I don't get it. And I'm thinking, okay, that's on me because I'm not explaining it very well. But the minute the pandemic hit, Everybody was like, oh, now I get it. And it was like a hotline. People were saying, okay, I get change is increasing. We need our people to be more resilient. We need them to be able to adapt to change better. And if we focus a little bit more in capability building in those areas, as well as communication skills, they're the things that I think just set us up for success in so many ways. Because it doesn't matter what the change is, whether it's something that happens in your personal life, whether it's something that happens in the workplace, You've got those basic tools to just be able to help you adapt, change, and course correct, which is you know one of the the core things that I support people for course correction. Yes, and and we will touch on that uh, shortly. But uh, I was thinking then, you know, we've already talked about our grandparents, etc. And and yes, the change might be a lot faster and more complex now, but is the change bigger than what it was for them? You, know, you think about grand my grandparents. You went from riding a horse and and walking and maybe even riding a bike to then, you know, the advent of a car and then going from receiving a telegram, <laughs> if it was even yeah. that, you know, like a piece of paper scribbled from someone to the point where they had TV or someone went on the, you know, the, the man on the moon, so to speak. So you had, for them, I think the changes were bigger but as you say, you had more time to understand them and get around it because you're not being bombarded with so much disruption and change all the time. Yeah, and the immediacy wasn't there. So if I chose not to purchase a TV, you know, back in the day, then that didn't impact me until if I chose not to get a telephone into the house, if I chose, you know, to stay with my horse and buggy, those things, there were a lot more um choice on behalf of the individual and not so much keeping up with Joneses or feeling that, you know, I, I'm going to be left behind because even I look at, you know, if I take the school analogy again or said school situation, um, I didn't want my daughter to have an iPad when we, when she was in, in primary school. And I kind of held out as long as I could because I'm, you know, I'm pen and paper kind of girl. Um, but at the end of the day, if everybody in your class, so it gets to the point where there's that tipping point of, yes, you'll have your early adopters, you'll have your kind of that, you know, the majority in the middle, and then you'll have your laggards. So I was one of the, the laggards, one of the last people resisting the change. But at the end of the day, I'm doing a service to my daughter if she's not able to keep up with that majority as well. So there is every one of us need to make up that decision for ourselves. In our grandparents' day, they probably had a little bit more time, whereas Things are changing so fast right now. We, you know, we almost don't have an option to keep up unless we're making that very conscious decision to step out of the rat race, so to speak, or to to live that more, whether it's conscious, woke, whatever you want to call it, that very different type of life that is not the mainstream mode of operation. Just maybe think, I wonder if Big Pens are the Kodak 
of of the pen world right like it's it's just about at a point where pens and pencils aren't even used at schools anymore maybe apart from art and even art i I imagine a lot of that's now become more creative design etc so it it is a fascinating space where uh, we, we try and hold on to what we did and what we think what we valued but in this world things are changing so fast i don't think people really care if your handwriting looks messy or not anymore um, uh, yeah, the older people do, but the younger people don't. And I know my, I for one, even though I am a handwriting person, my my handwriting has gotten atrocious because I'm not using it the way I used it. Mm. Course correction, and you talk about um, your course correction compass and the importance of taking personal responsibility when there's change and there's resilience and growth, uh, which is really important. And uh, for you, a have you, you know, for you, like, under, like you use that compass with the corporate world, um, but you've also had challenges uh, or changes in your own life uh, where you've had to course correct in, so to speak. And so when you talk, uh, I'd like you to explain your course correction, but also how you've utilized that over uh, your lifetime to make those adjustments along the way. Yeah, good question. I like the way you phrase that because it is, um, I think, and a, a lot of people who, you know, may run their own business or have their, their own IP and um, their own intellectual property, whether it's a keynote, whether it's a program, a coaching program or a, you know, facilitation program, a lot of it we don't realize at the time, but it, it it's a lifetime of work and learning that we're, that we're tapping into. So, Definitely for me, the core of what I do is all related to change and that's learning to adapt to change. So, yes, I talk a lot about resilience. I talk about a lot about mental health, but the core of it is how do I help people support them through change um, in the best possible way? But with them, you know, and the key for me is very much about course correction. So it, when we look at anything in our life, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, um, whether it's the place that we live in, um, nothing is permanent. And I, I talk a lot about impermanence. And if we can embrace impermanence, it's that case of nothing is forever. Love it while you have it. Like love mm. the job, love the person, love the situation for the term that you have it. And of course, this is all a lot easier said than done. But if you can embrace the fact that everything is going to change mm. um, and you can set yourself up in such a way, but then it's a case of the, the change that comes with that is it something that's externally driven um so you know maybe i'm in a relationship and someone wants to break that relationship with me so that's not something that i'm looking for but it's it's something that's being imposed upon you um or is it something where you think no there's something deep down in me that wants change so now i'm going to course correct so it's a case of not feeling a lot of us feel stuck we feel like you know we've um, stayed with a company and this, this is again this is probably going back to my roots of having a good job and holding on to a good job and keeping that good job mm. for life because that's how I grew up so when you're conditioned in that way then anything that comes into conflict with that or tries to change you from that you feel is a threat to you so you don't embrace the impermanence you don't embrace the fact that no you can course correct so if you're told we're making you redundant you feel like your life is falling apart because you didn't even think about that as an eventuality and we all really should think about that as an eventuality Mm. because you know as a a colleague once said to me it's not whether you're on the redundancy list or not it's just whether your name is highlighted right now or not so in other words we're all open for discussion we're all in there that you know it can happen to us at any time but you know you don't know the day that your your name's going to end up on that on the highlighter um, but, but it is that sense of through my life, and I talked about it with my meandering career path. So for me, so much of who I am and how I've operated has been non-traditional. Um, it's been, okay, there's a job opportunity that's been presented to me. I have never done this before. I have no idea, but it feels good. So like one of the things I, I talk a lot about is my gut feel or my inner compass. If it feels good to me, that's the direction I'm going in. So I will course correct. So I went from, you know, from a butcher to analytical chemistry to IT security, then into organizational change management. And now I run my own business. So it's Mm -hmm. that don't be too attached to anything and find your way of going through. And it is not just in the workplace, because if you look at this, um, you know, for, for me in the last 18 months, 
uh, my whole life has changed, even my identity online, because I've, um, you know, recently separated. So my professional identity as Diane McCabe, which was my my married name, has had to change to Diane Driscoll. So which is my maiden name, and, and I've chosen to go back to. But it is that, okay, that's my choice. That's how I want to present myself to, to the world. Um, if I spend too much time thinking about other people or other situations, then I'm never going to move forward myself. So that, again, the personal responsibility, embracing that sense of impermanence, everything changes in one way or another, whether you're changing it or someone else is imposing that on you. But if you do find ways to course correct and just think, you have, you know, if you're in a really bad job that you don't like right now, which I've been there, this is another personal experience, um, that, you know, being in that role where you're not happy, you're working all the hours of the day, you're coming home being that, you know, less than ideal partner or parent, um, you know, the onus is on you. Do you keep doing this? Do I keep doing this? Or do I course correct? Now, for me, that was one of the biggest life lessons because I actually, and I phrased this purposely, I allowed myself to go into burnout and breakdown. So I, that was my, you know, spectacular, you know, wheels fell off, like really, really the, you know, the one of the biggest impact times of my life. But it was because I was going against what I at my core needed um to to keep up with oh here's what's expected of you or what you've been conditioned to believe mm. oh keep this good job or you know that if you leave this you won't be able to pay your mortgage or you won't be able to get another job all of those things that we tell ourselves that internal voice that tells us so yeah. it's so much of the work that i do is based on my life experience and what i have you know learned the hard way but also things that did come naturally to me so that course correcting Anytime that I follow my gut instinct, follow that inner compass, it serves me well. Anytime that I don't, that's when my mental health flares up. That's when, you know, I'm not the best person I can be in a relationship, whether that's in the workplace or in the It's interesting. I, and just running through my head as I'm listening to you talk about course correction and the compass and in my mind, I've, I've got the, you know, whether it's in personal relationships or personal circumstances or it's in the you know in the corporate world i've got this visual right now of someone who's you know in charge of the boat you know the captain of the boat and it's the everything's changed and next minute there's a big storm up in front of them and you've got those who just go they're kind of bloody minded and go you know what i'm just going to tackle it head on i'm just going to keep charging through and you know hopefully at some point we'll come through the other side no matter what the risks are so there's obviously quite a lot of recklessness potentially in that approach and then you got those who will just turn turn the hull around and they'll just start heading back home and with their towel between their legs sort of in, in a space and just kind of give up and go you know what hey this is this is yeah. too hard and then you've got those who try and navigate through the swell and and, and find a different path so it's kind of sitting in my mind and it, it makes me think a little bit around you, when we talk about startups and new businesses and the amount of people who within 18 months, two years, just before they're about to actually, something's a beautiful is about to happen, they give up and they turn around and they go home. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know, it's just a beautiful analogy that's just popped into my head <laughs> based on what we're talking about. I love that because on the other end of the spectrum, you talk about the startups and I love the way that you're painting the picture for that. But then, you know, you, you look at the really old organizations that have done things this way, you know, forever in a day. And for them, they're, you know, that kind of bloody mindedness, as you're calling it, that sense of, oh, no, we can't possibly change, you know, when you've got that sense of um, fixed mindset leadership that you have in some of those organizations that's the kind of two ends of the spectrum but in the middle if you can trust yourself and so much of it boils down to your your decision making and that mm. sense that we all have of wrong decisions there are no wrong decisions because you can if you when you course correct you give yourself permission that okay this is the right decision for today and if tomorrow i need to course correct well i'll do it again mm. i'll do it. it doesn't matter what you're your life experiences, even, you know, with New Year's resolutions, it's like, okay, I'm going off all the treats and, oh, you know, bummer, I've just had a, you know, full bar of chocolate, whatever it might <laughs> be. It's, it's those things that just, well, get back on the horse, just do it again, keep mm. doing it, stop, stop beating yourself up about it and invest your, 
your mental capacity and your energy into that movie. Hmm. You know, when it comes to your course correction compass, obviously, yes, you may course correct, but it's still, it still can be a bumpy ride. It's not going to be yeah. smooth sailing, so to speak. And so we have to be prepared for that. You know, when someone, you know, does lose their job or there is a, a big transformational change inside an organization, which means they move, need to move five meters to the left and, and five rows forward in a seat or, uh, or, or a different job title, um, or it could be personal-wise where they may lose a loved one or there's a, a separation in a relationship, whatever that may be. Uh, what, what are some you know, helpful tips in a way for people who can, can kind of... Um, in that situation, they can handle that the bumpiness that happens. Yeah, it, it, that's a, a tough one because it's not a simple piece of advice. And like as a coach yourself, you know that you know coaching people through circumstances mm-hmm. like this, it's you know it's unpacking a lot of limiting beliefs. It's unpacking a lot of self sabotage. It's not you know that 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 negative voice inside our head just gets amplified at the time of change. Like, especially when it's change that is, you know, that we at the time think is not necessarily supportive for us. But later on down the track, we'll generally look back and think that was a good thing. But in that moment, um, it's like our capacity to think straight, our capacity to um, to make good decisions, to trust our own judgment is not good at that point Mm. in time. Um, And and there's a when I do um, course facilitation and keynotes i'll talk about the york studs and stress curve which basically you're starting the more you're starting to go into that being overwhelmed or being anxious about things that we are just our cognitive abilities just start to decrease so knowing that as one thing about yourself that okay this is high stress it's high pressure i'm not necessarily thinking straight give myself some grace and at that point in time i just think reaching out to someone who is a trusted advisor. So whether, you know, if, if, it's, if it's your therapist, go to your therapist. If it's your doctor, go to your doctor. If it's a family member, which isn't always the right thing to do, because if you go to your mom, your mom's going to, you know, stroke your hair and tell you everything's going to be okay, darling. Um, when that's not necessarily, you know, going to do you much good. But having, whether it's a, a mentor, a coach, someone that can support you through that, because we don't always see the you know, there are multiple versions of the truth, but we only see our own kind of amplified version of what we think that that disastrous truth is going to be for us instead of seeing the possibilities that are, you know, kind of opening up in front of us because change is generally paving the way for something else new, but we don't see it at the time. It's just too painful at the time. So I, I think just giving yourself grace as you're going through it and not if you can, and this is usually down to you know financial impacts or you know family responsibilities. If you can give yourself a little bit of time to just get back to center, get back to who am I? Who am I without this job? Who am I without my list of credentials? Who am I? You know, not as a parent. Who am I not as a husband or wife or partner or daughter of or son of? And um, that you're just someone that you think about. Who am I at my core? And how do I want to reset this compass for my life? Where do I want to go from here? How do I want to show up every day? Because it is an opportunity for you to change. And a lot of us, and I've been through this myself when I got made redundant, you're ushered into, if you're lucky enough, you're ushered into this program to say, okay, we'll give you this um, um, outplacement. um, We'll have someone work with you to figure out where you go next in your career. But it's actually less about where you're going next in your career. Uh, Use it as an opportunity to just say, who am I at my core? Who am I? How do I want to show up? How do you know what's the legacy I want to leave? Because if you go back into the next job and it's more of the same, then you haven't really taken the time or the opportunity to kind of reassess. And you know, we shouldn't wait for redundancies or major life changes or the loss of a loved one for those things to happen. If we can get into the habit of doing it at least on an annual basis, and you know, I'm not saying tie it to your New Year's resolution, but just that sense of taking stock of you know, am I on track for where I, where my inner compass wants me to go? Because every time that you're off center from that, that's where the wheels start to fall off and we, you know, don't necessarily navigate through life as, as easily. 
And so you know, I'm just going to go a bit deeper here with this compass thing. So your inner compass is this, you're talking here a little bit about identity. We've talked a bit about purpose. So is your compass kind of a blend of both identity and your purpose? It, it, it definitely is. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an external reference, first of all. So if you think about most of us point our compass towards what's expected of us. So, you know, our kind of societal conditioning, our family conditioning. So we think we've got to get this job. We've got to, you know, um, have the, you know, the certain house. We've got to have this car. We've got to live here. We've got to do this. I've got to be at the family barbecue at the weekend. I've got to, you know, I must, I should, I've got, I got to. All of these things. Things are the conditioning of where we normally point our compass like that, that but our inner compass the one that really is the core of who we are is us honoring what are our core values what's important to me how do i want to show up in this lifetime and for me it's a very much a it's a, a combination of what your purpose is but very much tied to your you know your your body mind and your soul so it's not just a lot of the time when we're dealing with um the uh, you know, our uh, conditioned compass, that's very much a case of, well, I'm doing what it's externally driven. It's, it's based on what everybody else for wants for me or what everyone else expects that we should be doing in society or in life at this point in time. But our internal one is more driven by your gut feeling, your intuition, your, your body, mind, and soul, what you're yearning for at the core of who you are. That's what your inner compass is trying to tell you. And, you know, if you continue to ignore it one of my biggest life lessons has been that that's when my mental health goes absolutely into decline it's like because i'm going against the core the essence of who i am yeah yeah interesting i i'm a little i know a bit about your journey over the last um sort of year or, or sort of coming out of covid and there's a lot more aspect of spirituality starting to come through. And, and as you explore this area, uh, if I think back, you know, even just a couple of years, and if we tried to place someone who loves to listen to, um, you know, heavy metal and put spirituality together, <laughs> people think you're going crazy, right? Like how, how do those two mix together? So I, I'm curious, you know, look, you're starting to, you know, explore something, that's, I imagine it's come out of a few changes that have happened, whether it be pandemic and, and obviously relationship over the last couple of years. Where Where is this ex exploration leading for you? Oh, it, it's funny. What I'm realizing is that it's not something new. It's something that's always been there. And it kind of, it, it does go back to that inner compass. It's like when I was a, particularly a teenager, um, I was very spiritual in nature, very, and like, I mean, I'm, when I say spiritual, I use that term in a broad sense. I was very into, you know, energetics of things. I was very into the paranormal. I was into cults. I was into just, you know, things bigger and greater than myself. You know, uh, the, the world's little universe mysteries that needed to be solved. Those were all things that were really important to me. Um, but then as I got corporatized, for want of a better word, so, you know, you, like when you grow up, you get married, you have the job, you, uh, you know, have the kids all of that kind of took a backseat, even though there was this inner yearning and this inner drive still for a lot of it. And I think particularly in the last few years, and I, I don't even know, like I, I know a lot of people have had, um, you know, we can call it awakenings, we can call it realizations, we can call it, you know, um, middle life crisis, we can call it whatever we want, but going through COVID, this kind of you know, tough look at ourselves, a kind of a, okay, who am I? What do I want to be? What do I want from my life? And for a lot of people, elements of spirituality has kind of come into that. It's like, I want something more than the transactional day to day, the home drum. Um, and for me, it was about tapping back into that. But it became the more I was working on my inner compass and developing that as a program and modules that go with that. I was, you know, it was almost like I was my own crash test dummy. It's like all of the things that I was having realizations about, I was being given opportunities that, okay, so you want to talk about change. Let's throw your life upside down completely. You know, your, you know, your marriage is ending, your home, you've moved home eight times in the past year. It's, um, you know, you're, you went from being a corporate person to now running your own business. Like, I mean, we're going to throw all of the change at you that either had some of it's been Post on you some of you have some of you have decided to, to start yourself but all of that that I that I 
realized for me that my connection to spirituality is really a way of saying I'm honoring my inner compass. I'm honoring my inner drive for what is true, the essence for me, my purpose, my um, how I want to show up in the world, how I want to contribute to, you know, just things being better than, than when I, you know, touched upon them first. Mm, interesting. And, and I know recently uh, you've been working on a project uh, around, you know, a, a new podcast that's about to launch um, at this time of recording. It's in two days time. Uh, the spiritual as uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't use a beat there but i like your i like your sound effects <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm very good at creating my own sound effects um yeah so so obviously now you want to share a little bit around from from your spiritual perspective or or you're bringing things through tell us a little bit around this project how it came about and and what what do you what can the listeners expect from this i'm sure it's going to be an absolute crack of a podcast that's launching later this week <laughs> Oh, I have to say there's a lot of nervous excitement about it because it is almost like coming out of the spiritual closet. It's like you're known for change, resilience, you're known for your corporate kind of profile. And this just blows a lot of that stuff out of the, the water because it's an element of me that people wouldn't necessarily have seen. Um, but so much of this was driven by, like, and I do call it a spiritual awakening. So for me in the last, you know, 18 months to two years, I feel like my whole my whole outlook on life has become a lot more spiritual. And of course, you, you know, you've touched on that. But um, what I started to notice was that this was happening for a lot of other people. So clients, like coaching clients that would come to me or people were being drawn to me who were a lot more spiritual in nature. And I was like, what is going on here? And because I'm fascinated by human behavior, this is where I, I was like, okay, I really want to learn more about this. But I'm also a person who... I share what I'm experiencing. So whether it's mental health, whether it's change, I will share the good, the bad, and the ugly of whatever it is I'm going through. I don't profess to be an expert on anything, not a single thing. Um, I'm just another learner. I'm a person who's experiencing things, but I'll share what I'm learning along the way and hope that it'll be helpful for others. Um, but the um, Spiritual As F uh, podcast, is um, it's, it's very much about four people who are starting out on that kind of they're just being pulled to things that are a little bit more spiritual in nature. They're starting to get spiritually curious about things and they find that they're Googling terms like, uh, you know, I've just connected to spirit or I, um, you know, what does chakras mean? Like it can be the absolute simplest of things, but they're just starting to search for kind of more uh, metaphysical answers. So things that are not necessarily in the physical realm or that science can completely explain. And podcast myself and Liz Volpe, who is my um, co-host, we, we basically, the two of us went through our spiritual awakening, like our, our Liz's story is phenomenal um, because she's actually now a psychic medium. So she's actually um, connecting directly to, um, to spirits who have passed on. Uh, but both of us were having this kind of spiritual experience around the same time. And we thought, okay, there's lots of other people out there. How can we help them? So we're just... We're two people that can talk about things as we experience them. We don't care. Yeah, we're going to sound silly in some ways. We're going to sound like, really, did she say that? Or I can't believe she shared that. But we're just figuring this out as we go along as well. And, you know, whether you're someone who is, you know, recently stepping onto a spiritual path or you're someone who has had multiple awakenings and you're highly enlightened, there will be something for everybody in it because we have guests on the show as well that we're checking out. How did they go from their initial spiritual experiences to a lot of them now actually have businesses centered on um, you know spirituality in certain ways now for me i'm not at any time soon starting to go down that path but i absolutely incorporate the you know my spiritual side into the work that i do and what i realize now is i always had so my intuition being highly strong was something that's always used in my coaching always used in my facilitation always used in my leadership i just didn't necessarily know that until now while i'm observing myself a little bit more mm, beautiful and liz volpe uh, for those who don't know her is a remarkable human being and uh, so yes. looking forward to tuning in when uh, on all good podcast channels when they can, when it comes available which is really exciting now don we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people <laughs> in the world ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time 
I guess I'm about to launch a podcast for the first time. So that is, yeah, that's me well and truly out of my comfort zone, like in multiple ways, like as in learning a lot of the technology. And before we even started hitting record, we were sharing notes about, oh, and what microphone do you use? And what, you know, what apps do you use? So I'm learning on steroids, not just from a technology. And I'm a very procedure and process driven person. So I'm learning all of that side of it. But what I'm also learning is how to push myself more and more out of my comfort zone because I'm talking about things that my um, corporate persona, for want of a better word, is highly uncomfortable with. It's like, oh, really? Are you going to say that? Are you actually going, you know, are you going to not edit that out of that podcast episode? No, it's like it's in there for the good, the bad, the ugly. So there's a lot of new stuff coming up or learning stuff for the first time. Mm, I love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, gosh. This one for me is, yeah, this is my, I say my life's work, but it's it's what I, it's my compass for the work that I do, which is, you know, how do we help people adapt to change without sacrificing their mental health? So for me, that's what kind of drives so much of the work that I do. I just want people to get better at being able to adapt to what's going on, honoring their inner self, but but in such a way that they're not adapting, 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 and then losing their mental health or losing their family, losing uh, that quality of life. So for me, that's every day when I wake up, that is uh, an inner desire for me, probably because I've been impacted by that myself. And finally, who, oh, how would you describe an inspiring great leader? And who is an inspiring great leader that you look up to? Oh, gosh. It's, uh, it's funny. No matter how many years go by, I have one leader that stands out for me that was my leader uh, when I worked at um, Campbell Arnott's. Um, he was my CIO. So he, um, his name is Paul Williams, and he for me and like no matter how many years go by no matter how many other people i meet there was just a pivotal moment for him as a leader with me well not just one multiple in the way that he led me so to his he was more in tune with now what we know as kind of human-based leadership as opposed to performance-based you know we're not just looking at here's here's what you're delivering um but uh a story related to Paul. So I had actually handed in my notice. I was leaving the organization. It was like I was doing three roles in one. And um, Paul had said to me, um, he said, you know that when you leave here, you take yourself with you. And I'm like, I have no idea. So he had to say that everything that you do, so all of the inner work that I've done over the years, I didn't understand it then, but it is, well, I'm just going to take that to another organization and I will have a lot of the similar situations coming up for me because that's how I respond to life. He also said to me, um, what's good for you is good for campus. Um, and that quote for me was like, again, I was like, I don't know what you mean. Clearly I wasn't the brightest, but it was a case of it's, it reminds me so much that when we do right by ourselves, when we do the good things for ourselves, that has a ripple effect out into whether it's the organization we work with, whether it's our family, whether it's our friends, our community. But that, again, honor yourself and you will be able to have that ripple effect out into others. And he was also, the third thing was he backed, he could see possibilities in me that I could not see in myself. So I was like a, an IT project manager, security engineer, um, and he was the one who said, oh, you're going to be change manager. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Um, and he was like, trust me, you'll be great at it. If he hadn't seen that possibility in me, I would have never seen it for myself. If he hadn't backed me on that, I wouldn't have moved forward. So as a leader, if you can really have insights into the mode of operation of your people and be able to be a mirror, reflect that back to them and coach them through that, but also see those possibilities in them, the things they can't see in themselves and be that cheerleader. Like, I mean, I, this is what I do in my work, be that cheerleader, you know, support them, push them, do everything that you can to get them to be the best that they can be. They're the things for me that show the greatest of, um, you know, leadership in any organization or in any. 
Yeah, it sounds like a remarkable human being and an inspiring great leader. Some really, <laughs> some great wise words there. I'm sure he's blushing if he's listening to this. He's thinking, what? How many years ago? That's a long time ago now, but it is. it shows the impact that a great leader has on people through the years and how they reflect on it and you might never know that those things pop into their mind yeah very good now it's been uh, fascinating talking to you today diana i really appreciate uh, going a bit deeper into a couple of areas that i haven't done with you before and i, I know it'd be really exciting for those who are listening in uh, but there'll be people out there who will want, want to be they want to connect with you and learn a bit more about what you do so what is the best way they can do that um, I think the, the best way at the moment is through Instagram. So I love Instagram. That's just like, it's a mixture of between my business, but also just my personal thoughts, whatever day to day. Um, so if you follow, so my business is the happy path. So it's at the dot happy dot path on Instagram or my website. And now I will be exposing myself here, showing how I'm not necessarily adapting to change. So I am still dianemccabe.com. It's on the to-do list to get a change to diandriscoll.com. But if that's how you're wanting to connect, and yeah, I'll send you through details, Craig, for the, for the show notes. Wonderful. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've, I've loved talking about your journey from being that, that child that used to just go outside and explore the nature and have a lot of fun to becoming a butcher's apprentice at the age of 13. And, you know, it wasn't just for a couple of years. You, you got a good solid seven or eight years in there. Yeah. Uh, and getting those wise words of wisdom from your dad around, you know, when you think about your career, taking into consideration a few different things and not just jumping out the first thing that sounds really cool. And, and been able to look at it from a perspective uh, and having that ability to uh, course correct throughout your entire career and life as well. So when you, you felt like you part of your life, your career, say in chemistry, you, you had kind of done that and you, you felt like now was time to shift into another direction. You were able to make that adjustment along the way. Uh, we didn't even get into this in the conversation. I, I would have loved to even talked about how you transition from the corporate world and and going into being a solopreneur and and the biggest differences between that so maybe we can get you back another day and and talk about those aspects because they're quite interesting as well uh and to now you're being able to connect with your more with your spiritual side of things which as you realize you know they've been there all along but it was just you're now more aware of them and now you're looking at how you can harness those and help other people through the podcast as well uh, so it's been a real pleasure. I've absolutely enjoyed every single second and moment of this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will soon. So uh, will soon too as well. So thank you very much, Diane. It's it's been great. Thank you, Craig. It's been an absolute pleasure. And next time we'll do it over an actual glass of Guinness. <laughs> oh, now we're talking. <laughs> it's time for you to join the inspiring great leaders movement by visiting Craig Johns com.au share this podcast on linkedin and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders we would love it if you could leave a review on apple podcasts or spotify drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the craig john's linkedin facebook and instagram pages be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.